Welcome to the second season of the Smarter Apple Spraying podcast series. I'm your host, Mark Gleason, a plant pathologist at Iowa State University. I'm also the leader of a USDA-funded research and outreach project that's looking for more efficient and lower-cost ways to protect apples against diseases and insect pests. The project includes scientists, students, and growers in Iowa and Ohio. Okay, well, our guest today is uh, Keith Mason. Keith is uh, uh, a key player in a service um, entity called EnviroWeather, which is based out of Michigan State University uh, that uh, provides weather services, really key weather services to growers, particularly growers of specialty crops, but other crops as well. Um, so welcome, Keith, appreciate your taking the time to do this. Uh, first, I'd, I think it'd be good if you would uh, kind of share how you got to where you are, uh, your, your professional journey to, to, to this point, so that uh, the growers who are the main uh, consumers of these podcast episodes can kind of see where you're at. Absolutely. Well, well, thanks for the invite too, Mark. I appreciate the uh, the time to talk about Enviral Weather. Um, but for, for me personally, uh, I actually come from a non-agricultural background. So um, basically a, a city kid, right? I, I was born in New York. I grew up in South Florida. You know, I so. knew I knew I recognized, you know, I, I, grew, <laughs> I grew up on Long Island. So you know, oh, okay. something about your voice was just a comfort zone to me from the get go. There we go. Yeah, see, I'm a, I'm actually from Queens, from Flushing. Oh, yeah, so, yeah I'm, so. and I'm from Nassau, so you know, probably 20 miles apart. Right, right, right. Okay, good. Another connection. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, so uh, I I moved to South Florida as a young kid and and grew up there, uh, and I eventually went to to Florida State University, um, and I studied psychology actually not not clinical psychology but more kind of the physiological side and and how that impacts behavior um and uh you know i was getting ready for grad school and and it didn't quite work out as quickly as i thought probably my own motivation um (laughs) but i i uh got involved in a retail job which is Hmm. you know actually it, it was a you know kind of a strange path but um it actually helped me a lot to you know work with people basically is oh, part sure. of it you know so that was i i can't just say oh my gosh you know that was just horrible because it, it did help me quite mm-hmm. a bit mm-hmm. um and so i i had a psychology degree but i knew i didn't really want to do that and and i knew that retail wasn't it either after you know i was supposed to work for a year and eight years later i'm like i gotta get out of here <laughs> so interesting so yeah, so I, I was taking some classes at um, uh, while I was while I was doing this retail gig, and um, so I got a, a biology degree basically. You know, I just filled out a few classes and that sort of thing. And during that time, um, I was uh, in part while well, I I had a um, an experience with late onset entomology, <laughs> which ah, is where... <laughs> like it. That sounds so technical. Right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and it 
it just was um, I took an entomology class as part of that um, experience and it was um, fantastic. You know, basically the, the professor there was Walter Chinkle, um, who's a, a fire ant specialist, essentially. Mm. So, you know, worked a wow. lot with ants. Um, and he offered me a, a spot in his lab, you know, for to do a master's. And of course, a couple of years later, you know, this was while I was in school, but then a couple of years later, I finally got back to him <laughs> and said, oh. hey, yeah, I do want to <laughs> get in. And um, so he, you know, we met and, and, uh, and it all worked out to to, you know, to go through and I, I entered his program and studied ants for, you know, for three years. And, and that was a really neat experience. Um, but then I, uh, I, I wanted to, well, we, we had, my family had had our, we had our first daughter. So, uh, well, actually our only daughter. Uh, and we wanted to move out of Tallahassee because we, we were still living there uh. because we wanted a place that had seasons that change. So, sure. so I started, you know, looking around and, and this was 1999, I guess. Right. So, um, and I found a, a job at Michigan state that looked very, you know, it looked interesting. I didn't have any agricultural experience, but it was working in, um, small crop or small berry crops, basically blueberries wow. and, and, um, raspberries and, and grapes. And so, um, you know, I, I met the professor there, Rufus Isaacs, who uh, mm -hmm, turned out mm -hmm, he offered mm -hmm. me a position. Mm -hmm. um, and it was a fantastic experience. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. I'd, I'd still go back in my mind and just think about what a wonderful time I had. Um, and towards towards the end of my tenure there, um, Rufus says, you know, Keith, you really should get yourself a PhD. It's going to open doors for you and things of that nature. So um, he offered to take me on as a graduate student while I worked full time. Uh -huh. So it was, you know, it was something that um, because I was working mostly in grapes at the time, I did my um, my PhD on uh, grape berry moth, actually, a, a, uh -huh. a internally feeding pest of, of grape uh, sure. clusters. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's a native insect, so really some cool wow. stuff. I got to bring back this kind of behavioral, ecological uh -huh. um, research that I was interested in, that, that kind of vein. Oh. So, um, and I'd already know, you know, I knew all the growers and where all the, the sure. high grape berry moth populations were from working ah. in the lab for 15 years. So, oh, sure. um, so yeah, so that was great. That was a, you know, a wonderful experience for me. I got to mentor students at the same time. And I, oh. you know, I basically um, was, uh, yeah, you know, I was the, the research technician and kind of the the lab manager so I was the lab mom for all these you know and we would have a sometimes we would have 30 people working in our lab wow. all the time when, what, when a, we what, includes, a, what a challenge yeah crazy definitely crazy luckily we had several people who could kind of be supervisors for the daily work and then I just kind of did the administrative stuff you know that still kind of that's thing. that's a massive organizational challenge exactly yeah and it, it was um I mean, we had just a knack for finding really great people too. So it, you wow. know, it just that makes in. it a lot easier. It sure does. Yeah. And it was, um, you know, something that I, I love getting out in the field and, you know, that was just a, a wonderful thing to work with growers. I was sure. you know, promoting IPM. So this was something that I felt very strongly about. Um, but, you know, actually at, when I started my PhD, Rufus is like, Hey, you know, when you're done with this, if you're going to want, you know, if you want to leave and, and, you know, start your own kind of, or, you know, go out on a different path that um, I will support you. 
And I'm like, Rufus, I never want to leave here. <laughs> well, at the, at the end of my PhD, it was like, okay, I think I, I think maybe I do want to try something different. Uh-huh. And, you know, I, I, in part was, you know, it was my comfort zone that, you know, I, I'd worked sure. here forever, sure. And, you know, knew the, knew the ropes and felt valuable. You know, that's, uh-huh. a, that's a super important thing. Um, of course. But uh, yeah, then uh, this position at EnviroWeather opened up. So, and, and it was towards the end of, you know, right before I was defending. So the, uh, you know, the timing was great. Fantastic. And I, I'm like, hey, you know, I will still be able to talk to growers. I'm still working in integrated pest management. And, you mm-hmm. know, these work to mm-hmm. my strengths. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I've known, well, I've worked with scouting with disease or scouting for diseases anyway, and, you know, and a little bit. So it wasn't all that wasn't foreign to me, you know, because no, I was you, an entomologist, you know, it, you knew the players and, uh, you know, uh, getting that much training from Rufus, Rufus Isaacs, who's kind of an icon when it comes to, uh, um, you know, fruit entomology. I've never, I don't think I've ever actually met the man, but um, he's, he looms very large and, you know, uh, uh, obviously he's uh, trained so many people and, and uh, such a, such a wonderful con- contributor to, you know, new knowledge about entomology in, in, uh, in those crops. Uh, so that's a wonderful backstory. Um, Keith, I love it. You know, I, mine is a little tangled too, but uh, I mean, various twists and turns. So I, I love this story because, uh, you know, it says um, I was in grad school in my thirties getting a second PhD and, um, you know, it, it, serendipity is such an interesting thing where it takes you, you know, and, and Absolutely. as you say, as you say, the, all the experiences along the way contribute to what you bring to the next thing. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's really true. Um, yep. I, I, I found that as well. And um, so I guess we have to switch and talk about Enviro weather now. So you've been, you've been there for a while and uh, have uh, um, a, a good uh, breadth of knowledge about what Enviro weather does. So for people who aren't familiar with it, could you just kind of describe what it is and what it does and what it's supposed to do? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, um, I guess, looking from the outside in from a user's perspective, it's a website that's a, um, a combination of tools for integrated pest management for many crops. So Michigan is extremely diverse in its agriculture. Um, we have a lot of different commodities to serve essentially for um, providing extension or um, other information education for growers. Um, and there's a lot that, that varies in that um, that realm basically, because what you can do for apples, you can't necessarily do for grapes or blueberries or, or what have you. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, so, but it, there is a lot, um, a lot of tools are focused on specialty crops. So that's a lot of what um, Michigan is known for essentially. So we do have quite a few tools. And, and if you were to look at the, the website that it's freely available to anybody. Um, oh, really? Yeah, it's enviroweather.msu.edu. And you can, yeah, I mean, you can check out the the sorts of things that that we have there. Um, And it, it, so that's that's kind of what people consume for the most part is that, you know, it's the website. So we're, it has uh, models that are divided up for different crops. And then also kind of some weather tools where you can look at weather summaries or look at maps or, you know, growing degree days, how those are building up. Um, and so it's, it's providing um, weather information to, uh, to agricultural and um, natural resource managers, essentially. So that's the, the 
kind of the outside part of it, but it's it's a heck of a lot more. Um, because that's interesting. It's, you know, pardon me. That's really interesting. Yeah. You mentioned the word free. That's not something you always hear with weather services. So so all the services of EnviroWeather are provided uh, no cost. That's correct. Yes. Wow. Yes. So uh, and and what enables us to do that is um, we we have a uh, a program a funding program in um, Michigan th through the state called Project Green. And yeah, I've it, heard of that. Mm -hmm. It was developed expressly for. Um, uh, well, I guess with a focus on helping specialty crop producers, because there, you know, a lot of um, a lot of times IPM uh, focuses on the uh, row crops or or you know larger cash crops, those kinds of, of things course. that that tend to. I mean, and they dominate the economy, and and we need mm -hmm. that absolutely. And Michigan has this, you know, corn is the most valuable, typically the most valuable commodity that we have. Milk is, you know, comes up as as number two, I think, Gary. Mm. Is that right? So um, yeah, so it's a. I mean, we have those those big agricultural. Um, operations it's not as big as it is in Iowa obviously but it, you know we we have this diversity of um, yeah. of specialty crops because we're you know we're surrounded by great lakes so sure. that's that's a super lucky thing for us i mean it really does uh, temper the climate especially you know within 10 20 miles of the of the lake that's where you find most of the uh, the fruit production here in, in Michigan is, is up against mostly Lake Michigan. There, there's some in Southeast Michigan as well. Uh -huh. Um, uh -huh. okay. and over, you know, by Lake Huron. So, oh, is there? Uh, okay. and, and Traverse city, you know, up, up in there, that's, that's still Lake Michigan side. So yeah, I've heard but, of that, but yeah. pretty much all up the, the coast it's, um, is, is fruit production. Well, yeah. fruit and vegetables, I should say, okay. I, I cannot, yeah, pass that up. You're listening to the Smarter Apple Spraying podcast series. I'm your host, Mark Gleason. Our three-year project is searching for more profitable and less wasteful ways to control diseases and pests on apples. Now, back to our interview. Okay, so drilling deeper into what EnviroWeather does. So if I'm an apple grower and I'm located in some particular area of Michigan, let's say the Ridge, I've always heard about the Ridge where a lot of apple growers are, um, can I use EnviroWeather to get like risk ratings or, you know, forecasts of disease risk or, or, or insect outbreak risk for my locality? Or am I just sort of getting it from EnviroWeather for sort of a general localized region rather than just my farm? How does that work in terms of the, the footprint on the ground? Yeah, that's we we actually have 104 weather stations spread oh. around um, uh, our our region, and um, so those are our uh, scientific. They're they're research grade weather stations from Campbell mm -hmm. Scientific. Mm. That's um, the the equipment that we use. It's costly. The good stuff. The good but stuff. it's rugged. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> um, so that's the that's the framework that we have. And mm -hmm. so um, typically a user or grower will go and say, hey, I'm in, you know, Kent County, what stations are in Kent County, and they can either look on a map and, you know, just click their location. So they, they see, um, you know, the dots on the map are, are all our stations. So they'll, you know, they can pick that out that way, or if they know the name of the station, um, they can, you know, search for it and, and get it that way. But yeah, they can run um, the models that we have on enviral weather. And, you know, you mentioned disease risks. So we do, um, you know, calculate uh, the, um, the 
risk of disease of infection for um, well, apple scab is a is a huge um, issue here, uh, mm -hmm. as it is in all over the Northeast. That's the kind of the big d disease um, for for apples essentially um, and pears too. But um, but the uh, so yeah, so the essentially they would choose the station that's closest to them or or most representative of their uh, of their farm. So there, you mentioned the ridge. I think there are a dozen stations or more on the oh. ridge, and it's only about twenty miles long, I think, and maybe five or ten miles wide. So this is a a very concentrated area of. Um, of fruit production and of EnviroWeather stations because um, we have been guided to a, a large extent by where these crops are grown. That's where sure. we locate our stations. So, so totally. it's, it's, it's good for, um, for those folks. I mean, that's a little different than most other meteorological networks because they're much more grid-like, you know, sure. and that's, that's a sure. different thing. So we, you know, we, we balance that as much as we can with, you know, where people need stations and, and where they've um, either worked to, to get funding to, to put in a station or, or that sort of thing. So we, we're constantly working with the um, the grower communities and the uh, the commodity groups to uh, strategically place stations when um, when we get funding for them. I see, and and, and so um, uh, you know this is a, this is a Michigan funded entity, Enviro Weather, and and uh, obviously you've got a very intense network and probably one of the top ones in the country. I know I know there's others, but um, so suppose I'm sitting in Ohio, just south of the border. Can I sort of borrow some information from the nearby Enviro weather station that's sitting up there in southern Michigan? I mean, well, they you could certainly access it from from anywhere worldwide. Mm -hmm. okay. So so that's that's um, possible. But whether it's going to be um, representative of, of your farm, you know, that the more distance you have between the station and, and your farm, typically the, the more variable things can be. Obviously, so, yeah. um, but you could, um, I mean, you could track that and then, you know, do some adjusting for, mm -hmm. for where you are, but that would be pretty difficult with models, you know, because they tend to use a lot of historical data and you might not have that oh. much at your own location. I know? see. So, so, so if you're, if you're outside the state, then you're not getting the benefit of these databases so much right? Uh, as if uh, Michigan grow. Okay. Um, so, um, you know, I've used Campbell stuff in my research for many years, and I know it's the top of the line, essentially, very, as you say, very rugged, uh, good equipment. What, with 104 stations, it's a, it must be a challenge for EnviroWeather to uh, keep the quality control, uh, e even for Campbell stuff, it's, uh, you know, things happen, it's out in the environment. So what, what, how, do, how do you manage those, that sort of QC kind of thing for, for so many stations? Well, it, it, it starts with the, the station itself. I mean, we, we need to monitor the, how the um, sensors are reading. Um, if, you know, if there's power to the station, is it communicating like we expect it to? Mm -hmm. um, and we do have some, uh, some scripts that run behind the scenes oh. to, um, to look for data that's basically an anomaly, something that looks sure. out of line, or it tells us if, hey, we haven't heard from the station for four hours, so there there might be an issue. 150 so degrees, 150 degrees Fahrenheit um, in the middle of the night is, is is indication that there's either a fire or something's wrong. Right. Exactly. Okay. Yes, you're okay. you're completely right, and um, so we get uh, some of those data are flagged. Um, 
And but then we have to follow up kind of manually to actually look at the data to see when the um, uh, when the issue might have started or, you know, what is it a drifting issue? Is it, you know, a, a um, sensor that's gone completely out? You know, those are, are things that we um, we have to kind of look at the data to get um, to get a good picture of that. Uh, but and this is kind of a, a tale of two databases, actually. So this kind of gets to the other big chunk of EnviroWeather. It, you know, it is stations, it's the website, but it's also a lot of databasing. And, and you know, for folks that are thinking about, I mean, uh, some other states, we're seeing other these mesonets pop up in different states. Right. And right. Um, always, you know, if they speak to us and ask us for advice, it's like, you got to make sure you you take care of the database, because that's something it's not sexy, nobody wants to hear about, you know, the what's going on in the code, that kind of stuff. It It is, um, it's very much behind the scenes, but it's super important. And it okay. takes a lot of time. Okay, Keith. And so this is an interesting point. I know, think about it from the standpoint of an apple grower, let's say, you're, you're talking about databases. Could, could you just mm. clarify a little bit, like a given example, maybe of what you mean there? Sure, sure. So, um, so the data is collected by the weather station, and then we transmit it over the cellular network. Um, we're, we're using Verizon. Uh, and that goes to um, actually a central uh, database for Campbell. And oh. then it's transferred down to our database on campus, all, all cellular connections. Um, so that's so that the data is coming down and then we have to store it somewhere. So that's what the database is, is basically where we're storing the data by, you know, date. And so this is the temperature for this date, you know, so that's, mm. it's basically a big old spreadsheet, a giant, many, many spreadsheets, a giant yeah. me memory organized in the way that you want it. So if you want to think of this, you know, as sort of an analogy, it's like all your 104 weather stations are like the, the nerve endings out there. They're sending all the signals back to the database. That's essentially the brain, right? It's, it, it has a memory. It has a way to organize all that, that, that input from the, from the nerves. And um, yeah, I think that makes it um, clear. Uh, so what's going on? And so when you talk to these other states, you know, and they're, they're putting together weather networks, you, 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 really, you really push the idea of having a really good database, data handling, data storage system, right? Right, exactly. And I would say that's probably the, the biggest challenge that we have. Um, one is, uh, I mean, it's the size of the network now. We, we still have essentially the same staffing that we had when we started in 2006, oh. and that was 40 stations. And oh. now we, we yeah. have double that. We've also doubled the amount of um, information both through models and, and weather summaries that we have on our website. So, so we're, um, you know, we're, we're stretched out a bit, I guess gotcha. is, is what it is, but that's part of my, you know, my job is to figure out ways to get more of this stuff done with our, our limited staff, because okay. I mean, EnviroWeather is also I like to, it's custom made essentially because, oh, yeah. you know, there's no guidebook on how to do uh, a weather network. So, mm -hmm. you know, we built it as, as um, time went by and, you know, as we added things, we had to, you know, figure out a new way to, to add that kind of thing, a new sensor, a new, you know, those kinds of things are always, um, 
I mean, it seems it's very easy to stick it on the weather station and, you know, get that, yep. but then yep. getting that to come through to the database and, and the website is, is a little bit more tricky. Um, and it, and it, you know, you gotta be pretty precise with that stuff. So, but, um, but, but sometimes you have somebody going out to visit a weather station actually, to make yeah. those on-site repairs and do you right. have a little, they have like a little personal helicopter so you can jump around. Oh, boy, I wish, <laughs> I sure wish that be nice. we said that many times. Yeah, yeah, we actually make two trips out to each station, one um, for spring maintenance. So that kind of lets uh. us recover <laughs> from the winter. Um, and then we do it also towards the end of the summer, towards the, um, the end of when we have student workers <laughs> to help uh -huh, us out yes. basically because yes. that's that's how that's a you know one of the reasons or, or one of the ways that we can cover all of this territory mm -hmm. um and so that's that's to basically set them up for making it through the winter so I that's see. kind of our i our, see um are the the way we check the equipment anyway i see now are some of these uh, weather stations located on on commercial farms rather than on you know michigan state i'm sure some, a lot of them are in michigan state um, you know uh, outlying farms but but some of them are sitting on a commercial farm probably a lot of them Absolutely. Yes. Yes. We, um, we did start out just by putting stations in at the, the MSU research stations, but, um, and, uh, in, in the, the northwest part of Michigan, especially there was a group of growers that were um, very interested in, in weather data and developing models. A lot of extension educators and specialists were, were interested in this. So they were a major driving force back in, in the 90s, in the mid 90s for, um, for putting together um, a network of, of weather stations. I think we had six at the time and they're like, oh yeah, we can oh. use, you know, many more. If we can buy you weather stations, can you can oh. you put them in is what oh, they yeah. said basically. And uh -huh. they, they passed the hat. So uh -huh. in, in some ways we, well, we, we are tree fruit heavy, I would say in models. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And that's because that's really where a lot of this started is, mm -hmm. you know, through mm -hmm. getting a, you know, a fire blight model, getting, mm -hmm. um, you know, getting apple scab up on a, a model that people can, can use to, to time their applications or, you know, check that the, um, the disease isn't developing those types of things. So Oh, interesting. Now, just, just a kind of a hypothetical here. I'm thinking that, okay, maybe I'm a grower in a county where there's only one uh, environmental weather, weather weather station. And, um, and suppose, let's say for the sake of argument that that station goes out, you know, there's a power failure, it's hit by lightning, whatever it is, and it temporarily is out. What, what can that grower do? I mean, um, uh, to get environmental, continue to get environmental weather data, can they, can they, First of all, will they know that the station's not working? And and also, will they be able to like borrow data from a nearby county or, or I mean, how does that work? That must come up all the time. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, these things are machines, so they, they do break down um, the weather stations anyway. Um, and so there are a couple of things that we do that they can choose, you know, a nearby station if there is one. That's that's a possibility. Um, but we also um, we have a, a system if uh, if data is missing from a weather station, 
we have uh, scripts that will go out to the National Weather Service. Basically, it's it's software that says, oh, go to the National Weather Service data uh, and uh, pull in the data for this area. And mm -hmm. we use that estimated data to run the models. Uh, so that's from their big uh, uh, sort of meso uh, atmospheric models. And they're, 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 they're essentially exactly. kind of uh, what interpolating into that one location. Exactly right. Yeah. So uh -huh, they, they uh -huh. basically make a map of, you know, oh, yeah. what the temperature is or, you know, or, or what it, it would, it would be based on all these years of previous data and kind of looking uh, at the, the trends of how that works. And they, they basically make a grid out of it. So you can choose lat lawns or lat, you know, latitudes and longitudes and say, you know, what's the weather here essentially is, is what it is. It's, it's similar uh -huh, to how uh -huh. they would give a forecast because that's done by, um, by those types of uh, measurements to lat latitude and longitude. So it's kind of like it's kind of like darning the hole in a sock, right? You've got the hole, which is the weather station that's not working, but you're you're kind of throwing this yarn in there to kind of close that up in as logical a way as possible. Yeah, that that's that's that, that sounds great. So so that's the big use of this bigger scale. Uh, if I'm correct, this bigger scale of what U.S. Weather Service data is to is to sort of close the holes that show up every now and then. That yeah, right. and well, and yeah. also the forecast data. So, oh, right, right. So right, we right, do right, incorporate right, forecast right, data into our right. models. Um, right. So that's a you know something that we'll go out and collect and and save as we um, as we use it basically. So I see. Um, yeah. So that's um, you know we we have several connections with the National Weather Service. Our our um, director Jeff Andreessen is the state climatologist for Michigan. Right. That's so right. So he's yeah. So yeah. he's you know he's the meteorologist of the family. So sure. He's, uh, sure. He keeps us grounded in 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 what we're doing that way. Thanks for listening to this episode of the second season of the Smarter Apple Spraying podcast series. You can find more episodes in this series at our website. The link is www.smartapplespray.plantpath.iastate.edu. The host for the series is Mark Gleason. Jose Gonzalez is the editor. The Smarter Apple Spraying podcast series is funded by a grant from USDA's Crop Protection and Pest Management Initiative. For more information about the two-state project, contact either Mark Gleason at mgleason at iastate.edu in Iowa or Melanie Lewis Ivy, ivy.14 at osu.edu in Ohio.